right. It is great to see you all here this morning. Great to gather together for worship. Uh, loving the fall. You all enjoying the fall so far? Yeah. Break from the heat that uh, we were also enjoying because we just enjoy life here, don't we? Amen. Amen. All right. So today I want to talk a little bit about walking like our Father, our Heavenly Father, that is. Um, growing up, um, like a lot of teenagers, there were those times in my interactions with my parents where I swore, I'm never going to be like you when I grow up. I'm never going to do that to my kids. I'm never going to do that to, you know, to, to others. I'm never going to respond that way. And now here I am, a parent, and every once in a while, my dad comes out my mouth. My mom comes out my mouth. Okay? I'm them. I'm who they were. And uh, that's kind of inevitable. You spend time with people, and you learn from them. And despite your best efforts or your mindsets or your perspectives or whatever vow it is that you've taken, you become them. Okay? You become to mirror, you come to mirror those that you spend time with, those that you're close to, those who have influenced you and shaped you. It's inevitable. It, it's, you can't fight it. You're going to be like them. And that's really John's point this morning here in 1 John chapter 2 beginning in verse 28, he's talking about the fact that we resemble the parent that we follow. And there's two fathers that he has in mind here. There's God the Father and, and there's Satan. And he says that some are children of God and some are children of Satan. And he's drawing these comparisons and he's drawing these illustrations to try and help his readers, to try and help us to learn what it means to walk like our Father, what that looks like. So follow along with me, if you will, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 2. John writes, So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know, that this, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed. For this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has, not, he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to look at this passage, to look at what it means to look like you, to walk like you, to follow you, God, I pray that you would just bless this time, that you would use it to instruct us, to illuminate our minds, and to transform our lives. Lord, help us to, to learn what it means to love our brothers and sisters, to walk with authenticity. We are so grateful for your goodness, for your mercy. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. What John is doing here is he's, again, he's trying to encourage this church, this church that's struggling with the whole issue of what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What, is that, what does that look like? Many in this particular church were talking about the, a special knowledge, that that's what it means. It, that if you have the special knowledge, it is higher knowledge, it's higher information, then, then that's what it means to be a believer. And, and that there is this path, this journey that follows in that special knowledge, they would say. John's trying to guide people away from this notion that it's, it's knowledge that drives our faith, that it's some sort of perspective or understanding or insight that drives our faith. Instead, what he's trying to get them to see, what he's trying to get us to see, is that it's a relationship that drives our faith. It's connection with God himself. It's not knowing facts about God. It's not rising to a higher level of insight or perspective. It's walking with God. It's pursuing him. And so he draws this picture, this image of us as the children of God, believers in particular as the children of God. And in drawing this picture, he's out, he outlines both the privileges and the responsibilities of being a child of God. With every relationship, with every parental relationship, there's, there's privileges and there's responsibilities. There's things that come along. You know, if, if your parent is, in the case of my children, a pastor, there are certain privileges that you get being a pastor's child. There are certain responsibilities that you get that others just really don't carry because they're not a pastor's child. If you work in a certain industry or you're the boss or, or you are over certain people, you have certain privileges and certain responsibilities. When I graduated high school, I went to work for my dad. He worked on drill rigs, um, and so uh, there was a lot of money in that, <laughs> and I wanted a lot of money because uh, I was getting ready to go to college. I wanted you know, to store up for that, and so uh, he allowed me to come work for him, and my dad was the boss, and so as the boss, I had certain privileges. I got to ride to and from the workplace with him. I got to... to uh, have lunch with him, which was a better place to have lunch than everybody else had lunch. Um, you know, I, I had certain privileges as his child. But there were also certain responsibilities. I had to work harder than a lot of the other guys who were working out there. Why? Because my dad was going to hold me to a higher level of responsibility. You know, because I was his son. And I couldn't make him look bad. That goes with every kind of relationship. There's privileges, there's responsibility. And John outlines what those privileges and those responsibilities are. He starts with the privilege. And the first privilege he says we have in being a child of God is God's love. 
verse 1 of chapter 3. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called His children. That's the first privilege. To, to be amazed, to be overwhelmed, to be filled with the awe of the love of God, the creator of all we see, the one who made the stars and placed them at the distances that we, uh, that, that we understand they are now. The vastness of the universe is mind-blowing. If you ever, ever get a chance, just, just go look you know, online at how large scientists say the universe is, how many worlds are involved, how many different solar systems are involved, how many galaxies are involved. And you'll just start to catch a glimpse of just how big it is and how small we are. This, and this is not anything new. Psalm 8, what is man that you would think of us? I look at creation. I look at the wonder of it. I look at the immensity of it, and I feel small. What am I that you'd even consider me? And yet, he loves us. He loves us. Not just, not just a passing, oh, y'all are okay, and I'll tolerate you. He loves us. I love how Max Lucado puts it. He said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk... He'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and he chose your heart. And the Christmas gift he sent you in Bethlehem? Face it. He's crazy about you. When you start thinking about God's lavishing his love on us, that's the word that John used. He lavishes his love on you. He, he, he pours it out. It, it oozes all over as he expresses and as he connects with us. There are lots of ways that God shows his love for us. The fact that we have family that we can connect to, that we have a church. He instituted the family and the church as two expressions of his love for us. Why? To support us, to help us, to encourage us, to direct us. Now, yes, sin has sometimes warped those things, and sometimes families aren't what they're supposed to be. Sometimes churches aren't what they're supposed to be. But if you start to, to dig down into what was intended when God instituted these, these entities, he's doing what? He's, he's giving us what we need to be able to stand firm, to be able to stand strong, to find confidence when the world is coming against us, to find support when support can be hard to find. He lavishes his love on us. He sent his son while we were still his enemies. He sent his son to die. When I think of that, when I contemplate that, I think of my own children. Man. To even conceive of giving one of my children so y'all could benefit. One of my own children to die so that y'all could find blessing or benefit. Mm. That's more than I can conceive of. 
Because I like y'all. I like y'all a lot. I'll even say it. I love y'all. Okay. But man, if it comes down between you and one of my kids, man, I, I have to be honest. I'm going to side with my child. And yet God, he sided with us. While we were still enemies, he sided with us. And he says, this has to take place. This transformation has to occur so that they can become my children. That's his love for us. That in and of itself, if there's no other blessing that we receive, that in and of itself is a great privilege to being called a child of God. But John also talks about this confidence or hope that we have. That we have a future. And, and I, I like the word hope. hope. Hope carries with it a lot of weight. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope, this, this future. But at the heart of it, in terms of the Greek, in terms of the language that John's using here, the idea is, not, is confidence. And I think that's an important distinction for us because we've, we've sometimes put hope on a lesser scale than it really should be. You know, we say something to somebody and we say, is, is this what's going to happen? And they say, I hope so. And it's just kind of been this, this almost this wishing that we're kind of throwing out there. I'm just going to throw out this wish and we'll just see if it happens. That's not how John uses the word. That's not how Scripture uses the word hope. Hope in Scripture is a confidence. Is that going to happen? You betcha it's going to happen. That's hope as Scripture has in mind. That's what God is trying to help us to see and help us to understand is that there is an end, and that end is his victory. His victory has already been accomplished at the cross. It is finished but we don't get to see the full fruits of it until he returns but as we live in that in-between time as we live in in that status in between those two events we don't live with just a well i certainly hope that takes place we live with a confidence that it's going to take place and that drives who we are that drives how we respond because if I know something's going to happen, that totally changes how I approach it. Back when I was in high school and college and I was thinking about dating, you know, especially when you're first starting out, you, you got that whole, does she like me? I don't know if she likes me. I think she likes me. I'm not really sure she likes me. And, and you're, you're wondering and you're curious and, you're, and you have these, these doubts. Do I ask her out? But it's altogether different when one of your friends comes and says, I know this girl, she likes you. Because then you're all like, she likes me. I got a little confidence now. I, I can go ahead and do it. I, I can go ahead and ask. I don't have to worry about her shooting me down or, or laughing in my face or whatever it is that we imagine is going to happen. I know she likes me. My friend told me she likes me. 
It changes our demeanor. It changes our action. It changes our response. And that's the way it is with Christ's return. It's not a hope as if, well, it'd really be nice if that happened sometime, God. It really would be nice if there was an end to this. That's not it. It's a confidence. It's saying it is going to happen. And because I know it's going to happen, I can live today with power. Because he lives, what? I can face tomorrow. That's right. It's the confidence because he lives, because he has been resurrected, because he dwells with the Father and stands beside the Father, and he's coming back to get us to stand beside the Father as well. I can face tomorrow. I can walk with assurance. I can walk with confidence. That is the privilege of being a child of God. My dad said so. You ever had those moments where you're discussing something with your friends you know, and you're debating some topic, and there's some sort of disagreement, especially when you're a kid. And you, you say, well, this is the way it is. Well, how do you know that's the way it is? Because my dad said so. My dad said so, so I know it's true. I'm the child of God, and he said so, so I know it's true. I can walk with that. But with those privileges comes responsibility. There comes these things that that must be a part of who we are. As I said, every relationship you have shapes who you are, and the parental relationship will certainly result in certain things taking place. Whether we want them to necessarily or not, if that relationship is in place, certain things will occur. One of the things that John outlines that will occur is growth. We will grow in the Lord. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 2 of chapter 3. We don't know all that we're going to be. You know, you have that, that, that song, a great song, I can only imagine what it's going to be like when we, when we see Christ and his power and his majesty and all that he is. I can only begin to imagine. I, I don't know what my response will be. I don't know what exactly I'll be like in that moment. But what? I know that I'm supposed to be heading there even now. The now and the not yet. I'm supposed to be moving in that direction. I'm supposed to be growing, changing, learning. If you're still who you were 10 years ago in terms of your understanding of God, in terms of your understanding of, of Scripture, in terms of your understanding of your faith and, and those sorts of things, then there's a problem. Because the child of God is going to grow in their faith. Like a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers, I keep, I keep all my old sermons. And every once in a while, just for laughs or maybe tears, I'm not sure what it is, I'll go back and look at some of the first sermons I preached back when I was in college. And while there was passion and there was love and there was commitment there, man, sometimes some of the things I said, I'm just like, oh, 
Tim, what were you thinking? Those poor people, God, I want to pray right now that you preserve them <laughs> from my young ways of doing things, of saying things, of expressing things. And I'm by no means perfect. I'm really glad there weren't any amens there. But <laughs> I'm by no means perfect now. But when I look at what God has done in my life just over the last couple of decades, I'm in awe. But I also see that some of that responsibility rests on me. It doesn't just happen. We got gardeners here. I know many of you have talked about your gardens and things that you do. A garden's not just going to produce what it needs to produce if you just go out there and kind of throw some seed and then just leave it. You got to what? You got to work it. You got to watch it. You got to guard it. You got to fertilize it. You got to make sure it's watered. If we're not getting the rain where we think we need and so forth. You got to take care of it for it to grow. And your life is no different. I think sometimes we get this mindset, okay, I've come to Christ, now it's just going to start happening. And some of it is going to just start happening. There is going to be some things, there are going to be some things that, that just start to happen in your life in terms of you seeing things and understanding things and, and, and living for Christ. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. That's part of his role in our life and our experience. But we need to take care of it. We need to cultivate it. We need to feed it. We need to watch over it. then it'll begin to grow. Another aspect is righteous living is a responsibility of being a child of God. No one, verse 6 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. And, and that's important because the translation I read when we started says everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. And you read that and you think, does that mean if I sin? <laughs> if I make a mistake, I don't know God? There are some who will read that passage that way. But Greek is a, is a wondrous language. It has a way of saying things <clears throat> that we really don't in English. And the idea here is of action that just keeps on taking place. So that's why when I just read it, I added the words keeps on. Because that's what John is really getting at. He's not saying you haven't sinned. Remember, go back to chapter 1. He who says he, he does not sin is a liar. So he's not suddenly just changed his mind and says you can never sin. What he's saying is the person who keeps on sinning, who dwells in that, who feels comfortable there, is not a child of God true child of God will never feel at ease or at home in the presence of sin. The Holy Spirit will convict. The Holy Spirit will direct. The Holy Spirit will correct. And so we're called to this righteous living. Now, this is different than legalism. When I say righteous living, when John says righteous living, he's not just talking about, quote, doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. 
Legalism is when we start to set up our own rules as a means of expressing that we are, quote, good people. Legalism is the law absent relationship. Paul says quite clearly in Galatians, we're not under the law anymore. We don't follow the law anymore. It's not a part of our connection with God. It's not a part of the covenant we have, the agreement we have. Well, then does that mean we can go do whatever we want? Paul says, God forbid that you would think that's what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting, I'm not saying you go do whatever you want. I'm saying instead, we live by fulfilling the law, not keeping the law. Keeping the law is our effort to try and do the right thing. We live by fulfilling the law. And how is the law fulfilled? Well, he tells us there in Galatians, the law is fulfilled by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's relational. When you've done that, you've fulfilled the law. You've expressed the law to what it was intended to be all along. If we get to the point to where we really love the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, and our strength, with all that we are, then, quote, keeping the law won't be an issue. If we get to the point to where we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then the issues of covetousness, lying, stealing, killing, mistreating, saying harsh things to enmity, strife, all those other things that grow out of broken relationship, those won't occur if we love our neighbor as ourself. So it's, again, it's not a pursuit of, well, I, I don't want to lie or cheat or steal. It's I want to love that person the way God has called me to love them. You see the difference? One is constraining. Oh, I got to keep this and, and I, I got to avoid that. And I don't, I don't dare turn this way and I don't dare turn that way because what if I mess up? And then I've failed. That's a hard way to live life. That's a hard way to live anything. I don't want to mess up. There's no joy in that. But if our path is, God, help me to love you with all that I am. God, help me to love my neighbor with all I am. And that's our pursuit. I'm going to love that person. I'm going to pour myself into that person. I'm going to sacrificially relate to that person. And that's freeing. Because what? Now instead of, I don't want to do this, you're saying, what can I do to demonstrate that? What are some things I can do to, to show that? How can that be expressed? And suddenly our creativity is let loose. How can I show that person I love them? How can I reveal that to them? How can I live that out? Man, I can get creative now. There's all sorts of ways I can express that. Built upon just who I am. I don't have to do it just the way that person does it. I'm not that person. God made me distinct. He made me unique. He gave me the personality that I have. How can I use that personality to love others? What are some ways I could do that? 
And suddenly, quote, living right is not a burden. It's a mission. A mission that God sent us on that I can use my creativity to carry out. I can use my gifts to accomplish. And I'm not scared anymore of failing. I'm excited about succeeding. And that's what John is trying to call us to in terms of our responsibility. That's a distinctive life that he's advocated here. The Son of God, or the Son of God appeared to what? To destroy the works of the devil, he says in verse 8. Jesus has done the hard part. We get to be free and creative in the loving part. And so that's what John is saying it means to walk like our Father. How has the Father expressed His love to, to us? In His creativity. Look at our world. It's amazing how creative God is. And you have to think that at least a part of that was, was his desire to bless us. Yes, it was for his glory and for his majesty, but a part of that was to bless us. You know what? I think they'd like some color. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them sunsets and sunrises to play with their minds about the different colors. I'm going to give them the aurora borealis. In the middle of the night, lights dancing in the sky. I'm going to give them flowers of different colors and different shapes, different scents. Items that, that every one of their senses are enlivened by. How did he express his love to us? Not by saying, not by saying I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. By being creative. How he expressed it. How do we express our love for others? How do we look like our Father? How do we walk like our Father? By being creative. For some of you, that's writing notes. I've known some good note writers in my day. People who can write a note, and you read that note, and you're just like, oh, it's so good. I'm so encouraged by that. Maybe it's serving. Man, you're not really out there. You're not out front. You don't really like being in front of people, but, man, you can work all day doing stuff. Maybe it's just being present with people. You ever had that person who just being next to them was a comfort and encouragement? They just exuded that peace. And because they expressed it, you experienced it too. There's all sorts of different ways that we can express our love for others. It's only limited by our own creativity as it's empowered by God. But in order for that creativity to be present, what John is ultimately getting at here is we have to be authentic. We have to be authentic. There's lots of, lots of products in our world today that try and imitate the real thing. You got plastic decking that looks like real, wo real wood. Vinyl flooring that appears to be ceramic tile. You can purchase fake fur or jewelry. Phony noses, hair pieces, 
You can get just about anything that's imitation of the reality. You know, you can even get spray on mud. Do you know that? Look it up. You can get spray on mud. Now, why would you want spray on mud? Why would anybody want spray on mud? Well, apparently, it's been produced and it's been marketed so that your SUV can look like you've been four-wheeling. So that you can look like you've been out there in the wilderness being a man's man or a woman's woman or whatever it is you think it is you're supposed to be. That you just return from the wilderness. And sales are going really well. Especially in cities like London. They buy it. They spray it on the side of their car. It says there's not a lot else you can do. There's not a lot of mud in Chelsea. So for $15... You can have mud on the side of your vehicle. Look like you've been four-wheeling. Heck, I'll, if you, anybody wants this, I'll bring some mud by for 10 Okay? I'll save you $5. All right? There are many things that don't make a lot of sense in terms of the imitation world. That's one of them. But the same is true in terms of Christian life where we have substituted something that's fake for something that's real. And we think we've done something magnificent, something wonderful, but we've actually sold ourselves short. We've taken prayer and substituted instead well wishes. We've taken spiritual achievement, growth in the Lord, and equated that simply with success. We've taken evangelism and the call to share our faith and disciple, and we've turned it into a bumper sticker or a T-shirt. We've taken worship that's meant to be a cry of our heart, and we've turned it into something that's expression just of what we like or don't like. We've taken the art of preaching, and turned it into a bunch of humor or emotional stories. We've taken Christian cliches and we've replaced biblical wisdom with those. We've taken a spirit-filled life and instead just substituted an attractive personality. God has called us to authenticity. He's called us to power, to clarity, to love. We need to stop settling for the imitation. We need to stop settling for things that that we can simply control and instead learn to express things as God alone. can drive us to express them. Too often we have settled for cheap imitations when God's granting us the power of authenticity. This morning as we come to the time of decision, it's a simple question. Do you look like your father? 
do you have an authentic relationship with God that's empowered by the Spirit, that's driven by His love, that's expressed through what He alone can do in our lives and not what we can manufacture or create on our own. That begins with a relationship. It continues with a relationship. And it will culminate in a relationship. God is calling us to dig deeper into our relationship, to seek Him, to know Him, and to make Him known should be our passion. Is that your passion today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come, God, I pray that you would help us to pursue with passion not a new set of rules, not a, not a list of activities, but to pursue with passion you, to know you, to make you known. God, may we all experience and understand that it's in loving others that we begin to fulfill the law as we express the creativity that you blessed us with. God, help us to be driven by that. Use this time for your purpose, for your glory. In Christ's name I pray.